This is going to be classic project kind of style. We're going for the positive today. People are a real hassle, aren't they? <laughs> is anyone with me on that? Yeah. What really irritates you about people? Come on, call it out. What irritates you? Nerds. 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 <laughs> Sam just called herself a nerd before the service started, so that's classic. Come on, what else? What else? Here? Like, what really gets under your skin? Yes. The way they drive. Yes. Yeah, that'd be right. The wife of a driving instructor. <laughs> <laughs> What else? Go on. What what gets under your skin? <laughs> From up the front. <laughs> when people ask questions at church. How good's that? People who get mad at people who ask questions. Oh, yeah, nice. Come on, keep going. What have you got? What what gets Poor under your skin? Poor punk. Sorry, uh, I asked about apostrophes in the first service last week. So I'm glad you weren't there. Poor punctuation. Come on, what else? People who cross your value system. People who aren't grateful. Yeah. Sorry? Rude people. Yeah, yeah, rude people. They're really annoying. Whingers. Kind of like us at the moment. <laughs> what, what else? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Let me, let me try you out on a couple. What about this one? What about people who steal your car park? Yeah, so you're all sitting there in the car. I mean, we, we, um, we went to the library uh, in the holidays. I took my boys to the, the library in the holidays, and there's a very, very small Toowoomba City Library car park now, kind of up, up the street a bit from the library. Anyway, so this car's backing out, and I'm sitting there. I've got the indicator on it. Everything's sweet, right? Now you have to go in and out the same kind of entrance to get to the, the, um, the car park, so you can't kind of drive through on it. So I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting. The indicator's on. The car goes away, and then I notice there's another car coming from up the other end of the car park. And I'm just going, no, that's cool, because I'm just thinking I'm going to be nice, and they can go out, and then I'll pull in, because I was in a big four-wheel drive and needed a bit of space, and they just went straight in in front of me, into the car park. Yeah. Because <laughs> you do that, don't you? You sit there and you go, Lord, it would be a real blessing to me if someone stole this park before I got in it. <laughs> What about drivers who take up two car parks? Do you like them? Oh. Yeah, see, now, now we're talking. Okay. Excellent. That was going to be my next one. Yeah, yeah. Slow drivers in the, uh, the right hand lane. Any, any, anyone else up for that? Yeah. What about this one? What about people who. Uh, reply to all emails when it's got nothing to do with most people in the company does anyone know what i'm talking about it's like what do i need to know someone had a band-aid put on somewhere like i don't need to know that just put the band-aid on and don't tell me about it um this is um what about this one people who don't do what they say they will do oh yeah now we're talking this this one this next one i'm just being honest with you this is probably getting up in my top two this one all right you're at movie world or some theme park You've been standing in the sun, sweating, starting to argue with people around you because you're sick of waiting, and you're just going to go, and I'm paying 70 bucks to ride on four rides for the whole day, and someone comes and cuts in at the front of the line. Oh, yeah. Is anyone with me on that? Just go, oh, they need some judgment right there. <laughs> and anyone here know anyone who likes just arguing with you just for the fun of it? Because it's fun, you know? I had a good mate of mine who was like that, and he would argue a point the whole way through and you get to the end and he'd kind of go, oh, I don't actually believe that. Because <laughs> he just wanted to have the argument the whole way along, just play devil's advocate all the time. 
What about the one, the, the person who's late to everything by the same amount with everything they go to? Have you noticed that? It's like you're 10 minutes late to everything. Just shift your clock 10 minutes and you'll be on time to everything. Um, people, manipulators. You got, anyone got any manipulators that they work, I have to live with? Just like they're always kind of angling to get their stuff sorted out in the direction that they wanted to get sorted out. Uh, precious salesmen who try to sell something you don't want. Yeah, hate that. Any, anyone else want to throw in? Oh, yeah. There you go. Thank you. That's, we've got children here, Sam. <laughs> it's true. And then, I mean, none of you are sitting at home in your prayer times in the morning saying, Lord, it would be really good if you doubled the number of telemarketers that called me today. You with me? You're just not doing that, right? You're just going, that's, that's really irritating. Well, let me ask you this question. I wonder what is annoying about you. Do you, do you realize, does anyone here actually realize that you're actually annoying to some people? Because it's kind of humanity. Yeah, you're not. No, we're not. A, we're, we're angels. It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if you've thought, like, what is a really common thing? What, what's one of the main common denominators about people who are really annoying? And I want to suggest to you today that one of the main common denominators about annoying people is they've got an agenda. And they're kind of up to something else. They're kind of up to their own agenda. They're up to their own thing. They've got their own plan and you don't fit in with it. And they kind of cut across you and it becomes really, really uh, frustrating. They tend to have a selfish agenda. Well, you know, what's really interesting about uh, the section that we're looking at from Mark today is we actually find that there's a lot of people bombarding and coming at Jesus with agendas. And uh, so I just want to read it. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd like to read Mark 3 from verse 7 to 21. We'll see the way that Jesus handles it. Jesus withdrew uh, with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, for you, you just go, ah, okay, so they came from places. Well, Idumea is 120 miles away. Think about that. No cars, no buses, no trains. They're getting there over 120 miles to see Jesus. He's pretty famous. Okay, uh, Tyre and Sidon, I think, are around about 50 to 60 miles away from where Jesus was at this point in time. Okay, so he's kind of almost like a mega church pastor. There's people coming from all over the place. There's people coming from Jewish regions that are coming to him. There's people coming from mixed regions between Jews and Gentiles, and then complete Gentile regions. It's uh, he's actually way more famous than John the Baptist. Okay, so if you've ever seen one of those pictures of Jesus, you know, and he's got a fluffy lamb right and he's sitting on a hillside and there's kids frolicking around and they're patting the lamb and he's kind of got him in his arms like this is not that picture okay this is more like on he's got the paparazzi around him he's got people pressing on him there's people everywhere and they just want stuff from him we don't know how many there were but it was a great crowd there was probably thousands of people pushing on him all right and wanting something from him when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This is a menacing crowd. This crowd could hurt him physically. He's just going, get me a boat so I can go offshore a little bit and I'll be safe. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. 
and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I'm not going to comment any more on this later, but this is a really interesting contrast. In one sense, you've got this great crowd and there's almost like the possibility that Jesus is going to fall before them because of what they want. But then the demons are falling before Jesus. You know, it's just a weird kind of contrast going on here. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered it again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So today what we're going to see is that everyone has an agenda. The second thing we're going to see is that Jesus calls agenda-driven people into relationship. And the third thing we're going to see is that Jesus changes people's agendas. Listen, everyone's got an agenda, and that's what makes people a hassle most of the time. Um, they have their own agendas. And what we actually see here is Jesus is bombarded with other agendas. But somehow in the midst of all of this, Jesus doesn't push them away. He doesn't get angry with them. He connects with them and he's able to stay focused on the mission and his father's will. He's able to stay focused on his agenda. So what I want to do is I want to go through some of the agendas that you actually see here. Here's the first one, the crowd's agenda. They're pressing, they're menacing, they're pushing in upon him. They just want to touch him because if they can touch him, they might get healed. As I said, this is not Jesus on a quiet, barren hillside. This is Jesus in the midst of bloggers, Facebook posters, um, paparazzi. This is people getting in Jesus' face and wanting something from him. It's not a response of faith. It's people pressing and crushing and pushing forward and mobbing and falling upon him. But the crowd wasn't the only one with an agenda. When you look at the list of the disciples, your brain was kind of working okay when we were reading through it before. You would have noticed there was a few times here you just go, oh, look at I can actually see a few agendas just in the list of names um, that the disciples, that, that's written down about the disciples. Let me go uh, through a couple of those. I mean, the last one, I mean, it's a real standout, isn't it? What's that? And Judas Iscariot, who? Betrayed him. All right? It's just like, oh, look out. He's got an agenda, and we're going to find out about what that is in the rest of the story. But you look through, I mean, Sons of Thunder, you're just going, that's interesting that Jesus calls him that. I wonder why. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, you've got James, the, sorry, uh, Simon the Zealot. Just going, that's an interesting like, little note to, to make from Mark's point of view. So let's have a look. What agendas do we actually see in the disciples? Um, in the Gospels. Well, this is just beautiful. I hope you get a bit of a laugh out of some of these because I think they're really funny. And they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. See that? So you imagine it. Oh, I think this is classic. What are they doing? They're all kicking along. 
it's kind of, maybe there's two little kind of packs or they're split up into two or three groups having a bit of a chat. As the disciples are just having this argument, having this debate. They're like a bunch of young boys saying their dad's got a better car than the other guy that makes them better. They've got to, you know, and they're just going through all that stuff. I can run faster than you, yeah, but I can sidestep better than you. And they're just kind of having this discussion. And it's just like, who's going to be the best? Well, I'm going to be the best and I'm just going to make that clear. And they get to the place they're going to and Jesus goes, hey, um, fellas, uh, what were you talking about back there? And me, I didn't say anything. <laughs> was, did you say something? I didn't say anything. Must have been John. You know, it's just like all of a sudden, it's, it's the classic thing like with kids, uh, when you're bringing kids up and you ask them a question when they've been doing the wrong thing, it's all of a sudden a spirit of muteness has come over them. They can't talk anymore. It's like, oh, no, it wasn't us. Um, Interesting that the disciples had an agenda, didn't they, at this point in time? And, um, and, and they got busted for their agenda. Uh, what about James and John's agenda? This is really interesting. In Hebrews, boagenes, you know what it actually means? It means loud ones or hot-tempered pair. <laughs> see? You hear an agenda right there, aren't you? You just go, well, look out, we're going to see some cool things. Let me tell you some cool things about James and John. Um, in Mark 9, verse 38... Um, John says this, he says to Jesus, he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. Like, when is casting demons out ever a bad thing? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like there should be as much of that as possible. You've got people kicking around that are being hassled by the devil and his angels, get them out. And John's going, well, hey, listen, he wasn't on our team, so I said, you better stop that, boy. That's bad. All right? Just getting his own little kind of agenda going on. What about this one? This is a, I love this one from Luke 9, verse 52 to 55. Messengers went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, for Jesus. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Listen to this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them. Can you imagine that? He's just like, they don't want to have us for dinner do you want us to make them toast like we can do that <laughs> we'll just call it down just we'll have a bowl of lightning right now that'll be really cool and jesus is going no nah, that's not what i'm doing that's not what i'm on about and this one is just a classic like imagine imagine this this is mark 10 35 to 37 and 41 and james and john the sons of zebedee sons of thunder came up to him and said to him teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you now that is just a ridiculous question isn't it that's like the Tim Tam genie thing, you know, but you just get unlimited wishes. It's like going up to God and saying, you need, can you do everything we ask? You just go, seriously, that's a dumb question. There's got to be some disciples going, are you guys serious? <laughs> seriously? And they said to him, grant to us, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Ah, that's all. We just want to sit on either side of the throne. That's all. <laughs> Nothing much, really. Uh, and when the ten heard it, I love this postscript, they began to be indignant at James and John. It's like, you idiots. Now, they've just had the argument, haven't they, about they wanted to be the greatest and the argument's not over. It would appear they're still going with the argument. But you see there, there's, uh, there's an agenda still coming from James and John. And then you don't actually have to get too much further to um, find out to find other things within uh, Mark and within the Gospels where the dis disciples had an agenda. In Mark, we haven't quite got to it yet, but there's a real hinge in Mark, and the hinge is 
Mark chapter 8, there's a story told where Jesus heals a blind person and the very next story after it is where Peter, finally the light switch on and he works out who Jesus is. All right? And it's almost like Mark's going, look, people have been blind. The blind person got healed and what's about to happen is Peter's going to have some of his blindness healed. Listen to this. Um, but who do you say that I am? Jesus says. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Boom, there's the light bulb switching on, right? But notice what happens next. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Note. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He says, can you imagine that? He's going, you are the Messiah. You are Christ. And then Jesus goes, well, I'm going to get whacked. And the religious people are going to do it. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And Peter goes, listen, mate, we're just going to have to have a talk. Can you just come over here? For... Sorry, fellas. Just, you know, you guys just wait there. Jesus, he's just, he's, he's not right. So they go off to the side and they, he starts having this talk and he's, no, nah, that's not going to happen. That's not happening. All right, what is it? Well, it's Peter. All of a sudden, Jesus has slipped outside of his agenda and he's just going, I'm going to pull him back into line. Crazy, crazy times. And then obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the Judas Iscariot agenda. Um, Mark 14, 10 to 11. Then Judas, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. What was Judas's agenda? Money. He wants money. He had his own agenda. And you know, as if that's not enough. I mean, he's got the religious people against him. He's got the crowd literally physically threatening him so that he's got to get in a boat. He's got just a bit of a schmozzle in terms of his own team that he's kind of pulled together. They've got all these agendas, and I haven't even gone close to identifying all the times where there's agendas in the disciples. You'll find it all over the place. Then he's got one of his own people in his little inner circle wants to kill him because he wants more money. Um, and then what happens at the end is probably is Tony Abbott. No, not really. Mark 3, verse 20 to 21, Notice this, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. Now this is pretty serious, right? So his family's watching, maybe his mummy's watching, all right? And uh, she's noticed he's not eating well enough and he hasn't had his, however many food groups there are, salt, sugar and lard, isn't, no, that's not it. Uh, however many food groups there are, he hasn't had all of those in the day, he's in a little bit of trouble and she's really concerned and the rest of the family's concerned so what do they do they went out to seize him now that greek word that sits in behind that word seize him actually means to arrest it's actually used in terms of a an actual arrest and so the family's coming and they're just going man well we're just going to have to arrest you and take you away i don't know whether they're going to cuff him or what they're going to do all right but there's that sense of seizing him why because they thought he had gone nuts like clinically insane He'd gone berserk. Now, it's one thing to be fighting an enemy, right? But when you actually start taking friendly fire, that becomes a bit of a problem. Isn't that true? I mean, you can be really strong when you've got opponents and and, and difficulties and issues, but your heart can kind of melt away when your own family, your own kin, your own people who are meant to support you turn against you. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It can be really, really difficult. Now... I'm going to show you a, a clip from uh, the news in the last week because uh, it seems to be the fashion of the moment to have a leadership spill. Uh, I said to someone actually about the project, I said, oh, it'd be interesting to see how it goes with um, 
you know, having two services. And he just said to me, well, I guess if it doesn't work, we can just have a leadership spell. But I was just going... <laughs> it was a... Uh, sun, uh, Monday night, I should say. This is a, uh, an interview on um, 7.30 Report. Yeah, it's... Anyone here a lip reader? <laughs> gift of interpretation. Well, let me tell you what he says. He says, I can fight Julia... Bill and Kevin, but I'm not very good at fighting the Liberal Party. And there's something about that. When you're actually starting to take fire from uh, your own team, it can be really difficult. You just can't fight a battle on two fronts. Um, You know, in one sense, um, his family's concern for him reveals something about their care for him and their love for him, but it also reveals how much they just don't get him. They just don't understand what's going on. I mean... It's entirely possible that Mary might have been one of the people from the family who were there trying to arrest him. It's like, yeah, well, what happened to you? Well, I gave birth to God, and prior to that, an angel came and saw me. Do you get what I'm saying? And then these three kind of wise men, well, we think it's probably three wise men, but well, let's, let's see how the story goes, because it doesn't actually say the number in the Bible. But they kind of showed up, and they'd given gifts, and shepherds saw some angels. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a pretty fantastic story that actually happens and his family are privy to it but somehow it gets to this point and all of a sudden God's gone nuts he's clinically insane all right he needs to be medicated and we're going to take him away and we'll strap him down and and uh, and get him medicated the story in uh, Mark 3 is filled with people with agendas and they're pressing in on Jesus Um, and it reminds us I think that we have agendas that's the stuff of humanity isn't it is that we all kind of have agendas and we bring our agendas to Jesus, we bring our agendas to God if you follow him and we expect God to kind of fit in with our agendas and if we're not Christians, we've got our own agenda that we're off on and a large part of that agenda is we'd like to be God, we'd like to be the one that's in charge, we'd like to be the one who's calling the shots. I'm going to have a quiz for you, you up for a quiz? I'm not giving money away today but um, I have before by the way, someone I gave money away at church and the person didn't want to take it, they said no that's no, it's, that was just a joke. I said, no, no, it's 50 bucks, it's yours. Uh, some of you go, ah, jeez, what day was that? Uh, what is the underlying agenda behind each of these statements? I'm going to put a bunch of statements up and they've got some similarities in terms of what the underlying agenda is behind them. You ready? You don't have to call it out, but think about it. I'm so happy we don't argue like we used to. I just love being with you. I'm enjoying the time I'm spending with my family. I'm so thankful for my friends. Is anyone picking anything up yet? You've been so good to me. It's great to know that I found someone I can truly trust. We love watching Anne of Green Gables together. It's wonderful how our personalities are so complimentary. This has been fun. Let's get together again. We have such a great sex life. Have a show of hands on that in a minute. I'm kidding, all right? I'm kidding. Before I met you, I was so lonely. It's great we have known each other for so long. We've had so many nice times together. We've had our problems, but we've always been able to work through them. Anyone pick anything there? You don't have to call it out, but... You know, in one sense, it'd be great to be able to say all of those things, wouldn't it? But what's hiding in behind each of those things, there is an agenda in there. 
What's the agenda? It's all about what the person can get out of the relationship. Yeah, you make me feel good. Now, is that a bad thing? No, we're not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. But it does sit in behind there. You see, most of the agendas I've covered so far this morning are actually marked by self-interest. Did you notice that? Not all of them, but most of them are marked by self-interest. And the interesting thing is that when we get together as a group and when anytime humans get together, their self-interested agendas come together and they rub up against each other and we get disappointed with each other. So I'll just ask you today, what agendas do you have? What agendas do you have in your relationship with God, in your relationship with others, in life? You see, sin turns people inward. When love for God is replaced by love for self, we see people either as obstacles that hinder our goals or vehicles that promote them. You've got to... It's an all-day sucker, that one. You can suck that one for the rest of the day and meditate on it. When love for God is replaced by love for self... We see people either as obstacles that hinder our goals or vehicles that promote them. See, it's a distortion of the two great commands that Jesus made. See, sinful self-interest distorts those. Instead of loving God and loving others, what happens uh, is um, instead of loving God and using his gifts to serve each other, we love the gifts and we use people to get them. We don't love people. I'm going to show you a table that's from a book by Paul Tripp and Tim Lane called Relationships and Mess Worth Making. This is a really helpful table and I'll I'll go through the top row and I'll give you a few minutes to have a bit of a a read through it and just see if you can identify yourself. But this this is one of the finer descriptive tables about the way that people do relationships that I've seen in a long, long time. Um, And it's really worth having a look at. So if if you don't identify yourself or kind of lock yourself in somewhere, I mean, you're probably going to straddle a few different categories, but it'll be on the website under the sermon tab. Let me run you through uh, the top one. Uh, the best place, this column on the left is really the type of um, self-orientation that you've got, okay? The self-interest that you've got. This is probably the easiest one to start with, okay? So you're, uh, the, th- this column here is about what the person seeks and wants. So if we start at the top one, the self-interest that people have is self-centeredness in the top one. They seek or they want attention and approval. The cost that they're prepared to pay... Uh, They'll sacrifice control and independence. Their nightmare or their fear will be rejection or not being recognised or affirmed. Other people's experience of them in relationships is that other people feel used, minimised and smothered. And the telltale emotion or action that the person typically has is anxiety and neediness. Do you get that? That's probably me more than any of the other ones. But I'll give you a couple of uh, minutes. Why don't you just have a bit of a... uh, scan down those and see if you can locate the one or two that you're um, most like or most you can most relate to just have a read there Where'd you go? Have you found yourself? Maybe? <laughs> you win. <laughs> oh, 
just going to move on now. You can check that out on the website later on. Tripp and Lane go on to make this comment in, uh, in their book. They say, the more satisfying the relationship, the less conscious you will be of self-interest. The most destructive diseases are the ones that don't show themselves in obvious ways. And we're going to move on to that now. The second thing that we're going to be looking at today is that Jesus calls agenda-driven people into relationship. It's amazing at one level, isn't it, that Jesus decides, I'm going to grab all of you guys who are so passionate about your different agendas and I want you to come and be on my team. God chooses people with different agendas to come into community with him and others. He decides and he's, um, in his sovereignty he's determined that he's going to bring about his purposes through people in relationships. Uh, the Bible's very clear about the fact that at the end of the day, the church is going to get all the stuff done that God wants it to get done. And it's going to, le- it's going to lead from the front. Now, anyone who knows the church well enough knows that's a pretty scandalous proposition, in a sense. You just kind of go, how's that going to work? I've seen churches. I've seen how they work. I've seen people get hurt. I've seen how disappointing they can be. Well, it doesn't matter. That's what God's decided that he's going to accomplish his work through and it's the same with jesus he grabs these people that have got all these agendas for their uh, relationships and a lot of them are self-interested and he says come with me i'm going to put you all together and we're going to get something amazing done jesus has a much bigger agenda for your relationships than you do every single one of them doesn't matter if it's the most difficult or the easiest one he calls people into community with him and others he calls them in with an agenda And part of the community is that he's going to transition them into having his agenda. What's really interesting, uh, just on a a cursory look at the uh, choosing of the disciples, is the colliding agendas that actually operate within the disciple group. I uh, preached on Matthew a little while ago. Matthew started off as a tax collector. He was a collaborator with the Romans. He ripped off his own people. He would have been viewed as a traitor. What's really interesting is Jesus goes... I'll take that tax collector and then I'm going to have that guy there too, Simon the Zealot. All right? You know what zealots were known for? They were actually known for being a political movement that was committed to holy war against Rome. They conspired for political control over Rome. You get that? That's a one heck of a Christmas lunch, isn't it? It's like Matthew's here and Simon's there. Matthew worked for him. He's trying to kill him. So what have they got in common? Well, probably nothing. Do you know Matthew and Simon were natural enemies, weren't they? Because of their agendas before being called into Jesus' group, natural enemies. And guess what? God's going to get people together in the church that are natural enemies. And you'll go, well, what have they got in common? You go, probably nothing except for Jesus' call. But that's a lot. And that counts for a lot. You see, the really interesting thing about agendas, a bit like the Paul Tripp and Tim Lane quote that I read earlier, is they stay submerged, they stay hidden. You know when you find out what your agenda is? When you don't get it. Have you noticed that? When you don't get it. So what's actually happening here is Jesus is grabbing people together with agendas and he's grabbing them and he's putting them in a group and they're going to try and get their agenda fulfilled and the other one's not going to comply with them and they're going to get frustrated and then they're going to see what their agenda is. Does that make sense? That's how it works in the church. That's how Jesus has designed the church to work. Get in there with a bunch of people and you're going to get really frustrated and really disappointed because they're not fitting in with your agenda and they'll get frustrated and disappointed with you because you're not fitting with their agenda and what happens is all of a sudden you're going, 
Ah, I see. It's not hidden anymore. I can see what I'm up to. When we don't get our agenda fulfilled, it goes public. And what ends up happening is that ends up moving us toward God and the adoption of his agenda. You see, the greatest threat to you and your relationships is self-interest. And God is working to pull you away from self-interest into his agenda. And far from being obstacles to God's plans, the problems that you have and the difficulties and the struggles you have in relationships are God's plan for changing you. You get that? I think for years I just thought, a problem's come up, the first thing and the only thing I need to do right now is just get rid of it. Because that's getting in the way. That thing's stopping God from, getting, from doing what he wants to do. It's stopping me from being everything I'm meant to be. When I, completely, I was completely blind to the fact, no, that thing is there to make me what I'm meant to be. That thing is there for a specific purpose. It's not an obstacle, it's a funnel. All right? Go through the funnel to get to the place that God wants you to be. Now, some of you go, yeah, but you don't know the relationships that I'm in and the ones that are so difficult. You know something? The great hope of the gospel, the great hope about God is that every single day God is up to something in you and the people that you work with. Absolutely. And you can get to some points that are really, really difficult points. And it's never ultimately an obstacle to God. It's always a funnel through which he's going to bring about his purposes. And if you go into every relationship that you've got, when it starts going sour, all right, and you come in and you go, someone's been sucking balsamic vinegar in this place and it's not me and you start getting really frustrated with it, you just go, okay, well, this would be really interesting because I want to see what God's doing at the moment. Because you know what? He's always doing something. doesn't matter how hard it is. He's always doing something. Tim Chester's a pommy and um, in spite of the fact they can't play cricket, uh, no, I shouldn't say that. He writes some good stuff. Listen to this. God is using the different people, the contrasting personalities in your church to change your heart. He's using the difficult people. Do you hear that? The difficult ones. It's, it's, like, it's like there's a mole in our church. You know, it's like, what is that? He's kind of planted someone and they're just really irritating me. Well, you know what? He's doing something through them. He's using the difficult people, the annoying people the annoying people, the sinful people. He's placed you together so you can rub off each other's rough edges. It's as if God has put us like rocks into a bag and is shaking us about so that we collide with one another. Sometimes sparks fly, but gradually we become beautiful, smooth gemstones. Remember next time someone is rubbing you up the wrong way that God is smoothing you down. He has given you that person in his love as a gift to make you holy. You up for that? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what's really interesting is at this point, I would, I would anticipate that at least some of you on the inside are going, yeah, kind of. It's like, yeah. So I go, do you think, like I could ask you in general, say, do you think that's, do you think a church like that's a really good thing? Do you? Yeah, it is. And then you go, well, do you want to be in that one? You just, yeah, kind of. I'd like to go on Sunday. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Because um, you know what? No one likes ugly stuff coming out. And you know where ugly stuff comes out most of the time? In relationships, in community, when people get to know one another. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, The church is a community in which we receive spiritual help, but also one in which deep-seated problems will come to the surface and will require treatment. <laughs> 
we often discover things about our own hearts which we never anticipated. And I could ask you again, do you want to find things out about yourself that are a bit ugly? Now, some of you might just go, no. (laughs) I'm all good. Ignorance is bliss, at least for you. Maybe not for the people who have to live with you, but... But, you know, probably the most human answer is, well, yeah, but kind of, no, isn't it? Because no one likes it. Yeah, but no. But you know what? God's promise at everything. I mean, God can't do anything. It's not good. He's, he's good. He's perfect. He just does things that are good. Is he going to be up to something really good by bringing things out? Yes, he is. Tripp and Lane go on to say this. What vision for relationships is the Bible painting for us? The highest joys of relationship grow in the soil of the deepest struggles. Struggles are not obstacles, but instruments in God's hands. Every struggle is an opportunity to experience God's grace yourself and give it to the other person. Is that true? Think about your relationships. Which are the most meaningful? Aren't they the ones that have lasted over time and have gone through excruciating difficulty? If you look at your own character, some of your deepest growth has been born out of great stress and trial. Be honest. What do you want out of your relationships? What do you want God to accomplish in those relationships? Will you settle for comfort, approval, ease and happiness? Or are you willing to take up the biblical vision for relationships? Point three. This is the good news. This is the gospel end, right? God changes self-interested agendas. You know, one of the most beautiful things about the scriptures is not that God beats people up and says you've got to behave a particular way, but God actually changes what you want to do. Philippians 2 verse 13 speaks of that and says here, it, uh, it is God who works in you both to what? To will. To will. Isn't that most of our problem? Our problem mostly is not that we're not disciplined enough to be able to behave the right way. Most of our problem, I think probably almost all of our problem, is that we just don't want to do it. I counsel people and people sit in front of me and they basically say that, well, I just don't want to do it. The most amazing thing, in a sense, that God gets up to in our lives when we become a Christian is that he changes what we want. Who here actually knows that you want things that you didn't want before you were a Christian? Yeah, it happens, right? You just kind of go, well, that's weird. (laughs) There's sometimes I find myself being unselfish every now and then. (laughs) And I just go, well, that's weird. And I kind of go, and you know, the other day I I did something unselfish. There you go. (laughs) If it happened once a week, you'll hear about it on Sunday. Because it's pretty rare. But I did something unselfish the other day and I, I just thought, I actually just really want to do that. And I just, I kind of, for a moment I kind of stopped and I just thought, that is just so weird for me. Because I just didn't, I didn't ever want to do anything unselfish. That's how it felt. But all of a sudden God changed my wanter, my wanter, what I want to do. And this is the great hope of the gospel. See, this is what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He pulls them into his circle and he doesn't, the tasks that Jesus has for the disciples, the tasks are not fashioned to fit the disciples. Do you notice this? The disciples are fashioned to fit, fit the task. That's what he's doing. David Powlison makes uh, this very insightful comment. I'll read half of his comment now and half later. 
The deepest longings of the human heart can and must be changed if mankind is to become all that God designed us to be. Do you believe that? That's where the battle's really being fought. It's not about legislation and it's not about behaviour ultimately. It's about the changing of the human heart so that the will, the desires are changed. Listen to what he says. Our deviant longings are illegitimate masters. Even where the object of our desire is a good thing, the status of the desire usurps God. Our cravings should be recognised in order that we may more richly know God as the saviour, lover and converter of the human soul. God would have us long for him more than we long for his gifts. Listen to this. To make us truly human, God must change what we want. We must learn to want the things Jesus wanted. See, if you're not a Christian today, your journey to true humanity and fullness of humanity is a journey to want the things that Jesus wants. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he set a stellar path. He blazed a stellar path for us to follow. Hebrews talks about how Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And I want to suggest to you today that Jesus learned to want what his father wanted, and you can too. Where's this? In the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, verse 35 to 36. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What's he asking? Well, who wants to get crucified? Who wants to do that? You know, and this is not even, you're not even really saying... What a selfish person you are, Jesus, because he doesn't need to get crucified. There's no requirement for him to do it. But do you see how he's kind, of, he's, he's, he's kind of got an agenda? But you know what's interesting is he doesn't become this fatalistic kind of stoic who just kind of takes whatever's coming to him. And he, just, and he doesn't turn to his father and he doesn't talk to his father. Do you notice in this how Jesus, he kind of stays fully human in relationship with his father and he goes to his father with his struggle and he talks to his father about it do you see that a lot of times when you become a christian what kind of happens is sometimes you can have these agendas and desires and then you kind of you get to the point where you just resign yourself to the fact oh god's never going to do what i want him to do so i just have to cop it sweet just suck it up well this is not suck it up is it this is jesus turning back to his father and in relationship with his father he's working through his agenda and getting in line with his father's agenda. Do you notice this? He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you see that? His heart, what he wanted, it didn't, wasn't invalidated, but what needed to actually happen is Jesus needed to get in sync and in line with what his dad's agenda was. And so we talked to him about it. And you know what? The fact that Jesus did that and he was able to do that and I'm not for a moment suggesting that Jesus wasn't perfect. There's a sense in which Jesus kind of developed and and moved um, and grew in his obedience to God as he followed him under pressure. I'm not saying that he was imperfect but you know what? The fact that he was able to do it gives you great hope that you can do it. You know why? Because of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. Listen to this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Listen to this. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
That's why he died. So that you wouldn't live a self-interested life anymore, but you'd get in line with his call and his agenda. Powerlesson goes on. The Christian life is a great paradox. Those who die to self, find self. You believe that? Probably partly. I mean, we'd look a lot different probably if we were able to really nail that one. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that you don't. I'm sure that you have moments where you do. Those who die to their cravings will receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. They will find new passions worth living for and dying for. If I crave happiness, I'll receive misery. If I crave to be loved, I will receive rejection. If I crave significance, I will receive futility. If I crave control, I will receive chaos. If I crave reputation, I will receive humiliation. But if I long for God and his wisdom and mercy, I will receive God and wisdom and mercy. Along the way, sooner or later, I will also receive happiness, love, meaning, order and glory. Do you know what happened to the disciples? 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. They got there. They got there. Thomas was stabbed with a spear to death. Andrew was crucified. The disciple Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy of dying the same way as Jesus. John died naturally on the island of Patmos, we understand, after they tried to boil him. Matthew, the disciple Matthew, was slain by a halberd. Bartholomew was scourged, skinned and crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon was beheaded. James was thrown down from the temple and stoned and clubbed to death. Judas, well, we'll talk about him in a minute. James was beheaded, the other James, and Thaddeus was stoned to death. Who were they like? They like Jesus. So somehow in this community, in this relationship with him and in this community, Jesus got them on his father's agenda, didn't he? Except for one. There was one who wasn't willing to lose his life to Jesus. There was one who wasn't willing to let go of his agenda. And true to the words of Jesus, he lost his life. He hung himself. His name was Judas Iscariot. What Jesus has done paves the way for you to follow in his footsteps. The project, the, the mission of the project is to, is to make disciples of Jesus. You know what a disciple is? Someone who's like his master. Someone who's like her master. That's what it is. That's what he's up to in you. And you know what? Far from that being a terrible outcome, you might look at the martyrdom of the disciples and you're going, that's terrible. I don't think they'd say that. I don't think they'd say that. I don't think they'd say, that was terrible. If I had my time over again, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have put myself out there. I think they probably would say they'd do it for Jesus all over again. 